A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co/insomnia. If you are a parent, are you able to tell how well your children are sleeping? Can you identify what is normal, healthy sleep, what is not? Do you know children's sleep quality actually may impact a lot of their mental health, their functioning, even their academic performance? If you want to find the optimal solution for your children's sleep, today's episode is must to listen. It's our honor to have the best-selling book author Dr. Winter, a sleep doctor, to share with us his new book, The Rested Child. He will share with us why sleep is so important among children, and what parents can do to help your children thrive through a good night of sleep. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. I'm your host Ishan. Let's welcome Dr. Chris Winter. Hi, Dr. Winter. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Hello, Yishan. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Again, having me again. Exactly. We had a really great conversation. I think two years ago. That's right. At the World Sleep Congress, I really enjoyed talking to you. I thought you did a great job with your interview. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, we talk a lot about how adults sleep, how what can be helpful, and today we're going to talk about children's sleep because I know you just have a new book coming out called "The Rested Child."、Um, so, do you want to tell us a little bit more about this book? What made you interested in writing such a book at the first place? So, in my clinical practice, we see both adults and children just with sleep disorders. So, I'm a neurologist and board-certified sleep specialist, but we see individuals of all ages. After I wrote my first book about adults, I kind of felt like there were resources out there for adults who had sleep disturbances or things they could read to understand more about their sleep. But when you mentioned Kids' sleep books. People's knee-jerk response was, "Oh, there's lots of those books." In fact, I read them when I was pregnant, or my wife was pregnant, and those books really just look at a tiny sliver of sleep medicine within the pediatric population, which is, you know, how to get your baby on a schedule and sleeping through the night. They kind of give you the impression that once your child's sleeping through the night, you're done. Like that's that's it. Their sleep's going to be fine until they head off to college and. One of the, the the frustrations that I find a lot with parents, educators, other clinicians is there's really not great resources out there for kids, parents, educators. Once your child gets a little bit older, and you know when we see in our clinic the vast number of older kids, teens, college students who have significant sleep problems that are being missed or misdiagnosed. I just felt like there was a real empty space there that that kind of needed to be filled. So that was sort of the reason for writing the book, and I'm I'm really excited about it, but also just being able to talk about the the crisis of of sleep issues in children right now that unfortunately 
has not been helped by the pandemic. That was never the timing of my book. And this, you know, going back to school after almost two years of being in a pandemic was never part of the plan. Um, but it certainly did work out that way. And, and I think the book is coming along at a pretty good time. Wow. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think pandemic possibly make the sleep problem worse for a lot of parents and for the children. But one thing you mentioned is also very interesting is that sleeping through the night for children sleeping through the night should not be the only goal. So what have you noticed are some often misdiagnosed children's sleep problem or what are some things parents are missing there? Yeah, I mean, I think the analogy could be sort of like nutrition. The goal is not to get your kids to eat all of the food on the plate. It's really about an evaluation of how much food they need and what's the quality of the food they're getting and what is the eventual outcome we want from eating. So while eating is good, we want children to eat. Nutrition science goes well beyond just putting food in your mouth. And I think that's sort of what we're trying to convey to people that just because your child goes into a bedroom, becomes unconscious for a period of eight hours, and then emerges, doesn't necessarily mean that their sleep health is good, even though it's helpful to your schedule and the way your family runs. So we just want to kind of open up people's eyes to the idea that that's one metric. And I also think that we struggle in this country sort of determining what is good sleep and what's bad sleep. People tell me all the time, I wish I could sleep like my father or my sister or my partner because they get in bed and fall asleep immediately. And so in their minds, immediate sleep is the goal. Even though that individual who fell asleep immediately may really struggle with fatigue and sleepiness the next day, we don't tend to link that with sleep health. It's all about immediacy of sleep. And if your child takes 30 minutes to fall asleep, we really have a problem that needs to be dealt with. And so I really want people to sort of expand their understanding of how sleep works and what the unusual signs of dysfunctional sleep are, particularly in a kid. You know, th these things are some of the most commonly missed diagnoses in pediatrics for a reason. They don't often look like what we suspect we would see in an individual who has sleep problems. So the kid who's hyperactive, inattentive, struggling in school, I don't think most people look at that child, you know, banging their pencil on the desk over and over all day long and think, wow, he seems pretty tired. In fact, he may often look the opposite of that. And so right off the bat, we're kind of heading down diagnostic pathways that are not going to eventually yield the right diagnosis. Well, I think that's a very important topic. Actually, a lot of people, a lot of parents may not know. Sometimes we use what adults uh, to predict or try to understand children. I know when I learned sleep, I was really shocked to learn when children do not get enough sleep. They look very different than adults. They are not drowsy, right? They could be hyperactive. Yes, absolutely. Which makes sense when you start looking at the construction of why are we giving hyperactive kids stimulants? Well, a lot of times the stimulant settles them down because kids don't like, you know, feeling hungry, feeling thirsty, feeling as if you're suffocating. When your bodies are not getting food, water, air, we have a discomfort that we feel that makes us want to find what we need to make that go away. If we feel hungry, we want to find food. If we feel thirsty, we seek water. 
when kids feel sleepiness, it's a discomfort that they really don't like. And so they'll often do things that, like you said, are very different than adults to make that feeling go away or, or manifest that. And so it's really important for parents to understand that some of the signs of sleep dysfunction in kids are very counterintuitive. You know, a slowed growth or bedwetting at night or concentration and attention problems. And, you know, I, I'd like to be able to say to you that I came up with all this stuff myself. I mean, I think that really smart sleep physicians and sleep clinicians and sleep researchers have been banging on this drum for a very long time. I and mean, look at Mary Karskinen's research up at Brown. I mean, she's been yelling at the top of her lungs, you know, attention deficit disorder, mood disturbances in kids are often not what you think they are. They're underlying sleep problem manifestations, but we just can't seem to get people to get really interested in that. So I think that appealing to parents and talking to them about this and going right to the source and letting them advocate for their children is really what needs to happen because the individual that you're talking to trying to get solutions to your kids' problems may not really have the training or the expertise they need to effectively solve them. And I think when you start looking at the amount of training clinicians have had in sleep, the average clinician, the average primary care physician or pediatrician, it's shocking how little training and understanding they have about sleep, even though these are some of the most common disorders that they're going to see in their clinic every day. My kid is too tired. He's falling asleep in class or my kid can't sleep at night. You know, I think there was a study back in 2013 that said 23% of primary care physicians have no training in sleep. And so these are not rare conditions. I mean, it's been estimated that, what, two out of three kids are going to have a sleep disorder between cradle to college. Massive numbers that we're really not prepared to, to fix. And when you throw in a global pandemic and the anxiety and stress and sleep disruption that goes along with it, it takes a crisis situation and makes it even worse. Yeah, I totally, uh, from my point of view, I totally understand that too. I got my license to be a clinical psychologist. I finished my doctoral degree. I even finished my postdoc in the child psychiatry department. I had almost zero training in sleep, but I am qualified to treat children. So, and I, and I know you manage a, a very big mental health practice you know, the people that I've spoken to, I'd be curious, I'm going to, I'm interviewing you now. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about, I mean, everybody I've spoken to says we are absolutely swamped with children at this point in terms of, you know, struggling with their mental health, being cooped up in their house, being on Zoom meetings all day. These things are sort of almost overwhelming right now in terms of our system of being able to adequately address them. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yes, definitely. We are so short of clinicians who can treat uh, mental disorders among children. It's we lack of resource. But after I got trained in sleep field, I always start asking questions about their sleep because I realize how important sleep can impact children's mental health, physical health. And I definitely saw in my clinical practice, I saw some children got diagnosed as crazy mental disorders like depression, um, psychotic. Not, yeah. yeah, sounds to me just, it really lo looks like a sleep disorder, possibly narcolepsy. Uh, not really, they are crazy. They have hallucination. The very first chapter I wrote when I submitted this proposal to my editor 
was a chapter on narcolepsy. I mean, narcolepsy alone could fill a book of just unbelievable stories and misdiagnoses. And, you know, with the great thing about it, it wasn't included in this book, but I did post it on my Twitter feed that I had a patient who was diagnosed with narcolepsy who she got diagnosed later in high school, eventually went to college. And she sent me her college transcript that sort of outlined our treatments along with her grades. And it was amazing as we diagnosed her, treated her with the medication one, treated her with medication two, her grades just kept getting better and better. By the time she graduated, she had a 4.0. She was, she was making straight A's. And she said, I would not only have not have been able to do that had you not figured out what was wrong with me, I would not have graduated from college. She said, there was, I, was, I was on a path towards leaving college because I just couldn't do it with this sleep dysfunction that nobody could put their finger on. And these diagnoses can often take a decade to make. It's not unusual for somebody to be diagnosed and say, I've been struggling with this for 10 years. Nobody's been able to figure it out. They just say I'm depressed. Um, so, I mean, I think it's very important for individuals to really look at sleep as something that might be underlying whatever complaint they're coming to a doctor or a clinician for. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents possibly pick up on that. Their eyes may wide open. Oh, if sleep is recognized and treated, their academic performance could be improved as well. I've got a file full of letters from teachers and parents that said, he or she is like a different child in school. I mean, just think about yourself that if I said, okay, I'm going to test you on something that you're very good at, but I'm going to keep you up pretty much all week, Monday through Friday. And then we'll do the test Friday morning after I eliminate your sleep pretty much. You know, most people would feel going into that test on Friday, a, a sense of not being able to concentrate, a lack of enthusiasm. You're looking at things that you think you know the answer to, but you can't put your finger on. I mean, sleep dramatically impacts our mental and cognitive performance. So I'm often amazed that children are doing as well as they do based upon the sleep that we see that they have. I mean, it's just kind of staggering. Like, I can't believe you're making A's and B's because your sleep is an absolute disaster. And it's so much fun to fix it. And then just kind of see what happens, not only in the short term, but the long term. It's, it's an extremely rewarding situation. Yeah, definitely. Now we understand sleep can really cause a lot of harm, can also do a lot of good if we sleep appropriately. Uh, then for parents, they may really want to know how to understand what is healthy sleep among children how to identify if there's some problems, when to seek help. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the questions I always ask parents when they're involved with their children, you know, are questions, when did you first think something was going on? And it's rare to find a patient or I'm sorry, a parent that's really in the dark about it. I mean, in fact, we've diagnosed a major league baseball player and I called his mother with his permission and she said, I always thought something was going on, but everybody just convinced me that he was so tired because he was working so hard. So I think rule number one is you're the parent, you know that child better than anybody else on this earth, including me or any doctor you might see. If you think there's a problem, you, you need to get a solution for it. Number two, I mean, I think that the thing that we want to really pay attention to are signs of irritability, lack of focus, 
a higher drive to sleep than normal, a, a lot of complaints about sleep fragmentation or continuity of sleep. Somebody feels like they're waking up a lot during the night. Behaviors, screaming, talking, walking, tearing the bed up, anything that seems abnormal to you, I think is fair game to talk to somebody about. And I personally would not let anybody diagnose a child with depression, anxiety, ADHD, until you at least spoke to a true sleep specialist. Because one of two things are going to happen. The sleep specialist is going to talk to you and talk to your child, maybe do a sleep study. And they're going to come back to you and say, you know what, this, your child's sleep looks amazing. It looks fantastic. In which case, I'm sorry I wasted your time, but it's a nice box to check. We know that sleep is not an issue here. Or that individual is going to come back and say, wow, there's some significant sleep pathology here that we need to fix. Fixing it might solve the problem or improve it. It may not. But I don't think it's great to jump right to a diagnosis until you've eliminated these things as potential causes of what might be a real sleep disorder. Yeah, I really like it and really hope sleep could be among the well-being check, right? When a child goes to see a pediatrician, they often have simple questions about mood right now, but not much about sleep. And, you know, it's interesting because that's changing in adults. If you paid attention to like Medicare patients, there is now a required form that primary care doctors who take care of patients over the age of 65 need to do, I think, at least once a year, where they ask very simple questions about sleep. Because Medicare is smart. They know if doctors start picking up on sleep problems and fixing them, Medicare will save money because the sleep apnea treatment will reduce heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure, reduce mental illness and, the, and those ill effects. So you're right. It would be great if there were just very simple little batteries that every clinician could use when you have your well child checkup. I mean, we measure height and weight and we look at teeth and all this stuff and listen to your heart. And I think that a couple of questions about sleep are very fair. And you know, I put some very simple assessments that any parent could do in the book as they kind of evaluate their own child's sleep to figure out if it's healthy or not, because simply how long it takes them to fall asleep is, is one of many metrics that we want to pay attention to. And in my opinion, probably not the most important. Mm. Oh, that's great. You have this kind of self-assessment measure, at least to get parents started. I definitely hear stories in my own clinical work from my colleagues that there are children, like you said, diagnosed with ADHD, but then figure out, oh, it's sleep problem. Once their sleep got improved, their symptoms of ADHD just got recovered. Amazingly. Sure. Yeah, and, and, and that's what's so rewarding about our jobs is when we kind of figure these little detective types of things out and get it squared away, just kind of watching how the behavior, the academic performance, and the overall mental health of that child changes. I tell patients all the time, you may be depressed and have a sleep disturbance, but it wouldn't shock me that if we fixed your sleep disturbance, your depression gets significantly better or might go away depending on, you know, kind of what this is actually doing to your child. So I think that trying to open up that idea of another avenue of questioning is really important. And then even, you know, little things as kids go back to school, of if you have a child that's really night oriented, as a lot of kids are, 
this book might arm you with a few assessments that you could do of your child where you could go to a school or go to a guidance counselor and say, look, my child, like me, is very night oriented. Here's a, a chronotype assessment that I did of my child. Then you can see that they're quite night oriented on the spectrum. Is there any way we can use this information as a means for us to get his calculus class changed from 9 a.m. to maybe 2.30 p.m.? Because I know he or she is going to succeed much more in this difficult class if it's later in the day versus first thing in the morning. So now the parent can go to a school armed with something a little bit more scientific than I want my schedule changed. Because I think these are very fair things to ask of a school because the school should be partnered with the parent to make sure the kid is in the best position to succeed. And for a kid who's very night oriented, succeeding with a math class, it's very difficult. First thing in the, in the school day is probably not the best timing for that student. That's wonderful information, right? To understand your children, understand your children's sleep schedule, and then how to help them to be more successful. Right, absolutely. I mean, we can make, we can do things to help that. If, if, if the answer is no, it has, it's only offered at nine o'clock. There are things parents can do, and we talk a lot about them in the book about ways to make your child feel more academically peaked at that time versus two o'clock. But sometimes it's a very difficult thing to find that motivation for a child to do. So why not just kind of go with their natural tendencies and try to set the schedule up to match that? Maybe gym first thing in the morning and then a study hall and then a class you know, that he does pretty well in and build up in the schedule rather than calculus, chemistry. And then at the end of the day, when they're kind of academically or intellectually peaking, that's probably not the best time for study hall. Wow. I think this is amazing what you mentioned exactly uh, showing us sleep is such an individual thing. Every child is different, right? Every, what every child needs is so different. You bet. And, you know, one of the things I always ask myself, and I talk about school and technology a lot in the book is, at the end of, you know, when a kid graduates from high school, and, you know, the top 10 or the top 50 kids get a little extra tassel or stole or something. I always wonder, are those the 10 brightest children in the school? Or are they the 10 you know, or 50 students in the school whose schedule was most aligned to the schedule of the school? Meaning that they just happen to be more morning oriented students peaked at that time. I mean, I think about that, like with athletes, you know, there's probably a lot of gifted athletes that are really great in the morning, but their performance in the evening isn't so great. So they don't ultimately succeed because most games happen in the evening. So, you know, we always want to look at that and figure out, yes, intellectual capabilities and, and, and drive mean something in a school, but there are other factors to consider that you may not necessarily be aware of or, or think you have control over. Wow, I feel like that's a missing piece for a lot of parents and the children that's really important for them to know. And sounds like your book is uh, wonderful. Like I already want to make sure I have that in my office so I can recommend to a lot of parents so they can understand their children so they can use it to really tailor some kind of plan to help out the children. So I'm well, curious- I will, I will send it to you immediately. Yeah. <laughs> it's on its way. Great. Thank you. So for your book, 
do you mention any difference or have you observed any difference among children at different age group? Yeah, my original plan was that's the way the book was going to be, be divided. You know, as you move from you know, infants to toddlers to little kids to middle school to high school to college. And there was so much overlap that I really did it more based upon diagnoses and disorders and symptoms. And then within that, talked about how that might be different between you know a young person exhibiting sleepiness who's running around the house naked with their underwear on their head and you can't control them and they don't look sleepy at all. Versus a college student who's sleepy who might actually, you know, be sitting in their lecture and, and falling asleep. I've had college students who've said, I never go to class and not fall asleep, or I have to do things to keep myself awake. So we really worked hard in this book to differentiate age groups and try to show that, okay, well, this disorder might look like this in a younger kid, but as they get older, it could change and suddenly things look different. I mean, when kids are little, hypersomnias are a, a parent's best friend. You know, the kid who's like sleeps all the time and never fusses about a nap and will actually get up from playing and go take a nap all by themselves. I mean, to most parents, that's a dream come true uh, because of that hypersomnia. It's just allowing them to sleep whenever they want to. As the kid gets older and starts to involve himself in academics and activities, that hypersomnia at some point becomes a liability. And they're like, my kid is falling asleep in class and he comes home and he doesn't get his homework done. He goes to sleep and he's quit soccer because he doesn't want to play soccer anymore. He just wants to come home and rest. So suddenly there can be a change in the way that symptom is interpreted, even if the symptom is really not changed. The sleepiness is just more acceptable in little, little people and very old people. In the middle, it's not nearly as socially acceptable. Wow, great. So sounds like no matter how old the child is, parents can still use your book to really understand each different sleep problems, what it can do to children. And sounds like further they can understand and even recognize some of the symptoms early on. That's right. I mean, my book really starts with how to sort of set the stage for healthy sleep prior to a baby being born. So it literally is pre-birth all the way up to they're leaving the house, going on to greater things in their lives. So I think that any parent of any child could pick it up and see value in it if you're expecting a child and really want to get things off to the right start. Or you've got a child who you feel like may be exhibiting some issues in terms of their physical or mental health that you're struggling to find a, a pathway forward to treat. I think this has got something for both of those parents, and it's not going to basically exclusively focus on the baby and leave that parent of a toddler or a preteen sort of wondering, what do I do for this person? Because a lot of books just kind of ignore these older age groups. Right. I also like what uh, you mentioned. I think your book not only covers the disease model, right? We not only talk about sleep disorders, sounds like even a child, they sleep relatively okay, but the child and the parents want to help them improve sleep quality and just sleep even better, thrive even more. They can still get quite a lot of ideas from your book. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and we talk a lot about that with our athletes, you know, an athlete who says, I actually feel pretty good about my sleep. What could I do to enhance it? So there is that spectrum, isn't there, of 
you know, significant sleep disorder, average sleep, you're sleeping as well as most people in this country do. And then can we actually make your sleep better than average and, and make it more resistant to issues and problems as you sleep. I, I used to call it bulletproof sleep, but I always don't know if that makes any sense. Just this idea that I, I feel very confident in my sleep. I think my kids do too, that if we go to a hotel tonight and it's sort of noisy or the bed's not entirely comfortable, I still feel very confident. I'm going to sleep quite well. So it's really about sort of constructing an individual who's very confident about their sleep because they understand it and they know what to look for in terms of things going truly wrong with it. So I love the idea of enhancing sleep. Let's take what you're, it's like, I don't want anybody to starve. So let's figure out what food we can give all these people to make sure they've got something to eat. Maybe after you've done that, it's sort of like, okay, well, some of the quality of food we're giving people isn't great. Yes, it is preventing them from starving and going hungry, but could we even make the quality of the sleep we're giving people even better? So now we've changed our metric from prevent starvation to optimizing nutrition. I think there's analogies that you can make with that in sleep. Like, let's get everybody sleeping on a schedule, a certain amount that's necessary for them. And then once you've achieved that, let's see if we can take that sort of sleep and make it even better. I always use a kind of like a junk food analogy, you know, like, okay, we're eating something, but it's sodas and, and processed chicken. Can we do something that's more organic and green and, and, and it's going to benefit that person even better? Oh, Wow. This analogy, I think, make it very easy to understand. Sleep is something, if we understand it right and do it right, we can totally optimize it. I like that idea of optimizing it. I do too. And I love the idea of, you know, we all think and talk a lot about sleep. In fact, throughout the book, I, I feature the writings of a woman named Anastasia Richardson, who was who wrote sort of this very early book about a hundred years ago on sleep health in children. And it's really interesting to hear her ideas. And some of them are, are kind of laughable. Others are pretty much spot on even a hundred years ago, just how we're influenced by things we've heard or how other people approach things. There's a lot of mythology and cultural lore in sleep that makes it sometimes difficult to understand how sleep really works because your grandparents told you something that's always been kind of stuck in your head. You know, if you don't go to sleep before midnight, the sleep doesn't work, you know, or things like that. I've heard people tell me that. So I had a woman who's, if she didn't fall asleep before midnight, she'd just stay up because she said, it doesn't matter. If you're not asleep before midnight, the sleep doesn't help you any. I'm like, who told you that? She said, my grandmother. So there's sometimes a little bit of, of, of strange information that we have to kind of organize and, and, and get rid of and replace with, with, with science and facts. Which yeah, is a lot of that's definitely very helpful. Uh, I think there's so many sleep myths out there and uh, um, guide people the wrong way and cause unnecessary anxiety about sleep, cause even more sleep problems. And you, I really like how you use science to explain all that and help people understand what science tell us about sleep. Yeah. And, and hopefully you know, the vast majority of readers, you know, believe in science and believe that 
these things are true because when you start to to understand something and you have science to sort of back it up, my hope is that with that understanding comes a level of relaxation, anxiety lessening. So, so now you're thinking, oh, well, he says that, you know, this is what's true and, and he's got some studies in there and I believe him. So that makes me feel better. I mean, I've had patients tell me and when I tell them, look, it's impossible to not sleep. That that sentence alone automatically takes their anxiety from a level 10 down to a level five because they do feel like if they don't do the right thing in bed tonight or they don't do the right thing for their kid tonight, they're in danger of not getting sleep, which is not going to happen. It'd be very difficult to prevent your child from sleeping and if even if you wanted to, which most parents don't. So. When you start to understand that, you know, fear and anxiety that you bring up is just so important when you deal with people in sleep or anything that they're trying to do where there's a level of anxiety or performance, you know, pressure that happens. And so we want people going to bed. We want parents putting their bed, kids to bed with a level of confidence that allows them to kind of get rid of that anxiety cloud and really focus on what's most important for that child. Yeah, that's another good point. I think you you mentioned right there. I'm I'm sure it's in the book too that anxiety about sleep. Uh, there are two parts of that for children. One part is children themselves if they worry about something related to sleep, and then the parents' anxiety about their children's sleep can add yeah. another layer. Oh. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Go to sleep. If you don't get to sleep, I'm scared you're not going to do well on your spelling test. So now that anxiety that the parent feels has been transferred to the child and the child's sitting there thinking, I really want to do well on the spelling test and I'm awake. What can I do? What, what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to disappoint my parents. I don't want a bad grade. So instead of, you know, hey, if you're having trouble falling asleep tonight, no problem. Why don't you just think about your spelling words and go over them in your head? Whether you fall asleep right away or not, you're going to be fine you know, kind of giving kids that sort of support and that confidence in their sleep that you're a whole lot better than one night of difficult sleep. In fact, somebody just won, I think, a medal in the Olympics. And they said that the night before they slept terribly and they were really excited that they felt like, but in the weeks and months and years leading up to the Olympics, they really made sleep a primary focus. But they said that the sleep wasn't that great, but I was so confident that The other nights of sleep had been great that I knew I was better than one bad night of sleep. So when you start taking that confidence that I can't lose attitude into bed with you or you transfer that to your kids, it is a massive gift to them that will pay dividends over the rest of their life and prevent them from being a 37-year-old who comes to see you and says, you know what, Yushin, I've, I've been a terrible sleeper ever since I was a kid. Like those identities are very difficult to shake once they embed themselves in somebody and you grow up with them. Um, So trying to fix that problem right from the beginning and giving a kids a strong, positive sleep identity at the same time looking out for sleep problems is really what it's all about when it comes to sleeping kids. Wonderful. Sounds like a lot of parents can do uh, when their child is still a child. Yeah, my dad was was a coach and he said, I can't coach height. And I always thought that was funny. Or I can't coach tall or something. He had a saying. All that. What he meant was, 
I can make you run faster. I can make you a better football player. I can do all these things. I can't make you big. But I think that parents have every opportunity and ability to make their kids excellent sleepers. I, I think that that is not the same thing as making somebody tall. And so I, I just want parents to feel optimistic that these things are not only under control, your control, but are not usually not that difficult, particularly if you're dealing with younger kids. You can you can understand sleep and, and, and make them better. You may not be able to make them have great grades or run fast or do all these other things, but you can make them really healthy sleepers. Great, great. So if parents really want to know how to coach their children to sleep better, which is totally coachable, and they can find your book, The Rested Child. Do you want to tell people where they can find the book, how they can find you, how they can read more about your work? Absolutely. So the book, The Rested Child, is available now, for, at least for pre-order prior to the 17th, everywhere books are sold, Barnes & Noble. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, there will be a uh, audible version where I'm reading it to you. If you like that kind of thing, you can buy it for your Kindle. If you're looking for more uh, information about my work, uh, I do have another book called The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It, which I think accompanies this nicely, really more geared towards parents and their own sleep issues. And then I'm on social media as at SportSleepDoc, S-P-O-R-T-S-L-E-E-P-D-O-C. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram there. And then I host two shows on Clubhouse every week. Uh, five, let's see, it would be 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern time on Thursdays, 7 p.m. Pacific time, 10 p.m. Eastern time on Sundays. So if you're on the Clubhouse platform, look up my name or the Sleep Secrets Room sponsored by sleep.com. And we have wonderful experts on there every week. And we will absolutely get you on there as a guest when your schedule permits. I know you're very busy. Thank you so much. Well, that's such a pleasure and great resources. Our listeners, if you are listening to this, right, go to find out um, Dr. Winter's books and maybe check out on the Clubhouse. I know you have wonderful like talks there. I saw definitely some other of our um, podcast guests on there. That's <laughs> so right. That's right. The, 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 the community has been wonderful about, and as I'm sure you find that everybody's always willing to help and, and talk about sleep. And it's just so much more fun when we have other experts instead of me talking about sleep all the time. I love to hear what people like you and our other friends have to say. Yeah. And also it's important to have a legit information out about sleep, right? It's not like random things you read online, cause a lot of anxiety. You don't even know whether they're true or not. So listen to real sleep doctors talk about um, evidence-based Treatment, evidence-based You don't find a lot of knee surgeons who don't have credentials. You know what I mean? If somebody's operating on your knee, you estimate, well, they probably went to medical school and some residency training and a fellowship. When you get into sleep spaces, what constitutes a sleep expert can vary dramatically. So I would just invite anybody, if you're reading something about from a sleep expert or listening to a sleep expert... It is your right to look into their credentials. You, you can look on the American Board of Sleep Medicine, American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and find out, does your sleep doctor have a true board certification? Anybody who's listening to this can look me up right now and verify all my credentials. And I think that's important uh, because like you said, the, 
there's a lot of interest in sleep right now, which is awesome. But with big interest and a lot of enthusiasm comes a lot of technology that doesn't make a lot of sense and a lot of writings and advice that's not really based in science. I was listening to something on a clubhouse the other day that talked about how important it was to keep your kids nose hair trimmed because that can improve their breathing by 50 percent. And I just said, is there a study that shows that? And nobody wanted to talk about that. So just it, it, listen, we if you've got a doctor or a clinician or a, a PhD who's offended by you questioning research, find a different specialist. I would welcome anybody to join any of our clubhouses or anything or write me and say, hey, look, you talk about this and I've not been able to find that. This book is heavily referenced. But we always want to stay above board about this is what we know. This is what we think. This is what we believe, even though we have no evidence of it. I believe, I believe a lot of things I can't prove. And I think it's fair for my readers or viewers or listeners to know when I'm talking about X and when I'm talking about Y. Yeah, so important. So, so important. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And this is wonderful, Dr. Winter. Thank you for sharing all this knowledge with us and look forward to reading your book. Well, my pleasure. It's amazing that you have time amidst all the endeavors that you're involved in. I love following you. I think you're a real shining light in this space. And it is always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you. Whoa, that's a lot of information. I cannot wait to read Dr. Winter's book to find out more about children's challenges and what parents can do about it. You can find Dr. Winter's information and link to the book on the show note at deepintosleep.co. If you want to optimize your sleep quality, and if you speak Chinese, please feel free to check out my Chinese online course at manbodygarden.com course. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions you want to ask, feel free to email me, let me know. And if there's any guest speaker you want me to invite to the show, please feel free to contact me as well. I'm your host, Ishan. Look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently. And there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia.